Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, January 26th, 2012. Elephant Room 2 plus 1. <laughs> oh, man. By the way, I've seen um, a lot of the Elephant Room. Apparently... <laughs> Apparently there's folks out there who wanted me to see stuff, made sure that I got, well, access, if you would. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there that just don't jive with what God's Word really teaches and says when you examine it in context and using just good old plain plain old grammar, you know, like verbs, nouns, adjectives, you know, stuff like that. And so uh, we, we and the problem is, is that many of the people engaging in this biblical obfuscation and uh, basically trying to teach things that the biblical text ain't teaching are prominent celebrity uh, star pastors, uh, pastors <clears throat> like Stephen Furtick, T.D. Jakes, and you know, some of the guys who appeared at the Elephant Room. But I wouldn't know about that because I wasn't allowed to officially attend. But uh, but don't worry, I've you know people, uh, you know because uh, <laughs> uh, many of you listeners out there are aware of uh, what happened yesterday and the fact that I wasn't allowed to uh, attend the venue uh, there in uh, Rolling Meadows, Illinois. Uh, you've made sure that uh, <laughs> I've had access to transcripts. I've had trans, uh, a- access to video footage of dubious origins, things like that, to make sure that uh, I didn't miss any of the important, relevant stuff. In fact, I haven't. Uh, but I can say without a shadow of a doubt that I have watched the exchange between Driscoll, James McDonald, and T.D. Jakes regarding uh, the Trinity. And, uh, in fact, I'm holding in my currently Cheetos-stained fingertips, yeah, a transcript uh, that I'll be reading from today. Now, I won't be playing any of the audio because the audio is, of course, of dubious origin. And so we won't be playing that on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. When it comes into the uh, public domain, I think it'll be interesting to take a look at it, at least you know, at least uh, from the official channels to look at that. And, by the way, we, uh, we've got our first... Attempt at, a, at an official explanation as to why myself and Aaron Benziger had uh, been excluded from the elephant room yesterday and, and told that we'd be arrested. 
<laughs> if we trespassed on the property during the event. So I, I'm assuming that, uh, you know, I, I'm not welcome at uh, the Harvest Bible Chapel in Rolling Meadows at any time. So, you know, I, I feel something like a fugitive, you know, you know, uh, Chris Rosebro, fugitive in over 50 uh, church parking lots. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's not wanted in in uh, in over you know 25 different church parking lots uh, throughout the Harvest Bible Chapel system. You know, it's not that I'm a fugitive or anything. You get what I'm saying. Anyway, so we're going to take a look at um James McDonald's uh explanation as to why uh, Aaron and I had been excluded, but then we're going to really spend the majority of the time taking a look at what you know, what was said. And uh, in the the things that are being written about it throughout the blogosphere, I mean, there there's a lot being said. And you know, here's the deal: people are going to ask right from Chris after hearing what T.D. Jake said. Do you believe he's a Trinitarian? I'm going to answer the question this way: I spent uh, about 45 minutes on the phone with a uh, an African American pastor in the Houston area. Uh, he's uh, the pastor of a small uh, home church. And uh, he and a, a colleague of his uh, went and viewed the Elephant Room 2 conference uh, at the, uh, you know, the satellite uh, broadcast church where it was broadcast there in the Houston area. And uh, here's the deal. Do you know uh, that the uh, the church that hosted the Elephant 2 Room conference in the Houston area was a oneness Pentecostal church, was a oneness church yeah, that held, holds to the, uh, the Sabalian modalistic heresy? Did you know that? I didn't know that until he called me and told me that's where he attended. And uh, then he went on to let me know that he had a conversation with the pastor there at the Oneness Church that was hosting the uh, the event. And the pastor, who was a modalist, um, felt that um, T.D. Jakes's answer was still straddling the fence. And after watching uh, what T.D. Jakes said and after, you know, really scrutinizing the uh, uh, the transcript, um, I I agree with that oneness pastor that uh, he was doing the uh, doing a dance there. So, uh, you know, it may, let me put it this way. I, if I think that uh, T.D. Jakes's position may be best described as modalistic Trinitarianism, maybe that's the right way of describing it. But you'll see why I say that as the program develops. And so, you know what, it, rather than, uh, you know, talking more about it, I think we should dive into uh, our post-Elephant Room coverage for the day. And by the way, in hour number two, we're going to do two good sermons because I need to continue to floss my brain here. I need to hear the gospel. And I picked two sermons, uh, one from Jeremy Rohde from uh, Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California, and uh, one from uh, a, a pastor in Greenfield, Indiana. His name is Pastor O'Connor. And uh, both of these guys are preaching from Old Testament texts and then tie it back to Christ. So I picked them because uh, you know, both of them are, are you're preaching from primarily beginning with an Old Testament text and then building back and pointing it to Christ. And they're both they're they're excellently done. So that's what we're going to do in hour number two. Again, I need I need to cleanse my palate. I'm still trying to get the bad aftertaste out of my brain. Uh, from the Code Orange revival. So, I mean, you can understand that, right? You know, so anyway, so let's dive into our post Elephant Room coverage here at uh, Fighting for the Faith, which requires us to play our Elephant Room update music. Look out, look out, meet elephants on parade. Here they come, hippity hoppity. Oh, they're here, they're there, elephants everywhere. Look out, look out, they're walking around the bed, on their head, clippity-coppity, oh, 
parade, in great big elephants on parade. What'll I do? What'll I do? What an unusual view. I can stand the sight of worms and look at microscopic germs, but technicolor pachyderms is really too much for me. <laughs> I am not the type to faint when things are odd or things are quaint, but seeing things you know that ain't can certainly give you an awful fright. What a sight! Chase them away! Chase them away! I'm afraid! Need your eight big elephants on parade! There we go. All right, so uh, that's from the movie Dumbo, Pink Elephants on Parade, which is our update music for Elephant Room stuff. So from the blog of James McDonald, James McDonald, he has a uh, blog post entitled First Blush Thoughts from the Elephant Room. And in this blog post, he gives uh, the, the, the explanation as to why um, I was turned away from the Elephant Room yesterday. And it uh, doesn't quite explain why I was threatened with arrest and trespassing, but... Um, in the uh, section of the blog post entitled Great Vindication, James McDonald writes, he says, Of course, we defend our right to exclude from attendance those who whose track record is unauthorized taping and out-of-context distortion. Now, I, that's, that's the sentence, okay? So now I want to make something clear. Absolutely clear. James McDonald, Harvest Bible Chapel, The Elephant Room, they absolutely have the right to exclude whomever they want from their private property and their parties and, and their events. Not contesting that, okay? But the reason given, okay, so the reason given is that they were they were defending their right to exclude from attendance those whose track record is unauthorized taping and out-of-context distortion. Now, I want to make something clear. Um, I had no intention to unauthorize, you know, to engage in any unauthorized recording of the elephant room. I was going there to witness it so that I can report on it. And I have a long track record on this program of not quoting pastors out of context, but doing long-form discernment and letting you hear them in context and critiquing them biblically in context. But so here's the deal. Apparently, uh, James McDonald and the folks at the elephant room well, um, well, their security team. Now, yeah, you got to understand this about uh, seeker-driven churches. They've got a lot of money, and um, and so I'm convinced that the guys at uh, the Elephant Room, ha well, th they have they're such they're loaded with so much money, and you would ex expect at ninety nine dollars a head, ninety nine dollars a head they would be able to hire the most cutting-edge security system and team out there. And apparently they did. Have you all seen uh, the movie with Tom Cruise called um, The Minority Report? Yeah, l here, listen, this is from the trailer from the movie. Okay, Jad, what's coming? Double homicide, one male, one female. Killer's male, white, 40. Set up a perimeter and tell them we're on route. I'm placing you under arrest for the future murder of Sarah Marks. Give the man his head. The future can be seen. All we have to run on are the images that they produce. We see what they see. There hasn't been a murder in six years. There's nothing wrong with the system. It is perfect. I agree. Murder can be stopped. Tell me exactly what it is you're looking for. Flaws. Did we get any false positives? We are arresting individuals who have broken no law. But they will. The fact that you prevent it from happening doesn't change the fact that it was going to happen. The system can't be 
wrong. So there you go. See, Tom Cruise, if you haven't seen the movie, he just arrested a guy. Just arrested a guy for a crime he was about to commit. Hadn't committed it yet. And if you've seen the movie, uh, then what, you know, this, the way this works is they got future crimes, a pre-crime division there at, uh, in Washington, D.C., sometime in the future. And what they do is they they got three precognates who sit in some kind of a weird Cylon-ish uh, goo, and they're able to telepathically, precognitively know the future and know who's committed a crime, and then they pass the information on to the pre-crimes unit. And the folks in the pre-crimes unit, well, then they spring into action and take down the suspect before the crime actually took, takes place. Now, so here's the deal. Working theory at this point is that James McDonald and you know the folks there at the Elephant Room? Well, I think they used the uh, the vision uh, abilities of Mark Driscoll. Now you think about this: in the past, Mark Driscoll has made it clear that he's able to. Well, it, you know, the Holy Spirit apparently gives him visions that look you know like watching an HD movie or you know in his mind, and so apparently, I, so this is our theory: is that Mark Driscoll was was given a precognitive vision whereby I engaged in unauthorized taping and then later out of context quoting of uh, from that tape of of the elephant room itself now I wasn't even aware that that that, that this was what I was going to do I had no idea that this was, I was going to engage in illegal uh, taping of the uh, of the elephant room, and then later use uh, quotes out of context from that illegal tape to you know to engage in smear tactics or what. I didn't even know I was going to do that, but apparently God the Holy Spirit gave Mark Driscoll a precognitive vision that that was what was going to be the case. And so, listen, you know the, this idea that that uh, that the folks at Harvest Bible Chapel were acting vindictively. By threatening to arrest me with trespass for being at the event, that that's just flat out false. Clearly, what was taking place here was that they had a precognitive vision that's it, it, by which they knew I was going to commit a crime, so they were protecting me from committing that crime and making sure that I didn't engage in an egregious sin. So all of this, all of this was designed basically to keep me from stumbling into sin and, and doing something that, well, is, is sinful. So really what I need to do is thank the folks over at Harvest for their actions and springing into action on this precognitive vision information that they received from their high-end security force, obviously empowered by the visions of Mark Driscoll, to keep me from committing a crime. So... Yeah, I, I got to tell him. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I appreciate you keeping me from sinning. I had no idea that I was going to, and I had no intention of doing it. But apparently, uh, had this had I been allowed into the event, I would have committed a crime. So there you go. So Minority Report uh, technology now available for vision casting pastors uh, in the elephant room. So yeah, who knew? Moving along from the Reformation Twenty One blog. Headline reads, Totally Predictable, written by Rodney Trotter. Okay, now this uh, this piece, by the way, is a little bit of satire, but it makes the point that I made yesterday. Listen, the elephant room is not, is not an open conversation with people who are really truly taking opposing sides. It's a theodrama. It's a theodrama designed to look 
like a reality TV show, but it's not. There's there's strategizing going on. There's a, there's a goal in mind. Um, as a result of it, you know, it's it's clear that uh, that this isn't really about real theology. Why? Because what? Who was missing from the elephant room? Not not just me. Uh, who was missing from the elephant room yesterday? A theologian. There was there was no theologians. I mean, seriously, if you really want to have a discussion regarding the Trinity. Set set Dr. James White across the table from T.D. Jakes. Then we'll know what he really believes. Because, well, here's the deal, is that he understands what to do. In fact, I got a couple of, of uh, articles I want to read in kind of leading up to the uh, discussion about what was actually said uh, content-wise regarding the doctrine of the Trinity and T.D. Jakes uh, at the Elephant Room. So, But this, is, this actually makes a good point, and I, I want to make sure we get this, okay? Rodney Trotter writes, he says, just as I expected, the usual discernaholics, as I call them, will, I am sure, be writing me at some point in the far off distant future to complain about my invitation to Bishop Jantry to join me and my buddies for laughs, conversation, and agenda-setting larks in the cuckoo's nest. Totally predictable, totally Utterly predictable. Hey, haters, I await your complaints with a yawn and a roll of my eyes. Let me remind you of some Theology 101. God has made two kinds of people. Big, extraordinary people and little, ordinary people. Now, there are just two basic rules to remember. Rule number one, the job of the big people is to tell the little people what to think and how to behave. Rule number two, the job of the little people is to listen to the big people and do as they say. Hey, it really is totally that simple. Not exactly the doctrine of the Trinity, is it? <laughs> LOL. Incredibly humbling as it is for me to say this. The Lord has laid on me the terrible burden of being, yes, well, you guessed it, a big person. And you, well, almost all of you, have the awesome and exciting privilege of being little people. While I wish I could be a little and, frankly, irrelevant, sadly, the lot has fallen on me in a very different place. Me, big, you, well, little. I won't patronize you by drawing out the implications of that for our relationship. Thus, you must trust me on this. I can assure you that Bishop Jantry is a man of great spiritual integrity, someone whose attitude to things such as money and power is, frankly, far more biblical than the monasticism I see creeping into the Reformed evangelical movement. I can also attest to the fact that Bishop Jantry always says nice things about Jesus whenever he mentions him and often cries when he thinks of injured puppies. Above all, his presence on stage sells a lot of tickets, a sure sign that the Lord is blessing his ministry in powerful ways. So thus, those tempted to criticize should first ask themselves the hard questions of gospel-centered self-examination, such as, how many advanced tickets would my presence on stage sell? Hmm? No, if that number isn't greater than 4,000, then, well, then, darlings, might I be so bold as to suggest that you might want to remind yourself of a little old rule. Yeah, see, rule number two above, before you presume to criticize Bishop Jantry and my other friends in the cuckoo's nest. So, hey, haters, let me urge you 
to set aside your discern holism. The Bible, after all, has some pretty harsh things to say about that attitude. See Acts chapter 17, verse 11. So rather, give thanks for the privilege of being ministered to by me and people like me and people such as Bishop Jantry. And, well, you, you get the point. If, however, you find that you're still struggling with the sin of questioning big people, hate and discern holism, I suggest that you watch the following video which was sent to one of the Reformation 21 bloggers this week as a means of helping him mortify this particular sin. You can download it here. And so I, I've downloaded it, and, uh, and, and here's the video that will help you mortify the sin of questioning and criticizing big people. Now, remember your place. You're a small person. <laughs> Bishop Jantry, he's a big person. Your job is to listen to the big person and be blessed by what, they're, what God is saying through them. So <clears throat> here's the video. Great and powerful Oz. I said, come back tomorrow. If you are really great and powerful, you'll keep your promises. Do you presume to criticize the great Oz? You ungrateful creatures think yourselves lucky that I'm giving you audience tomorrow instead of 20 years from now. Oh, the great Oz has spoken. Oh. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great Oz has spoken. Who are you? Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there you go. That, that, I think that video kind of makes the point. Great blog post by Rodney Trotter. You can find it at Reformation21.org. Just in their search bar, type in totally predictable. And I think that pretty much sums it up. Here's the deal. You got to understand uh, people like King James McDonald, uh, people like Pope Stephen Furt, I'm sorry, Messiah Stephen Furt, people like Pope Perry Noble, they're big people. Yeah, I'm not a big person. I wouldn't sell out an, uh, uh, you know, an arena or anything like that. So as a result of it, I don't have the right to criticize them because they, after all, represent the great and powerful, mighty Wizard of Oz. Don't look. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Yep, great post worth passing along. All right, next in line, also from the Reformation 21 blog, is Carl Truman's post entitled, Do You Beat Your Wife? Carl Truman writes, he says, A number of Reformation 21 readers have emailed to ask me to comment on the elephant room. To be honest, Frank Turk over at Team Pyro has expressed what thoughts I do have, but better than I could have done so. This is kind of interesting because, you know, a while ago, uh, Frank Turk, who, who I had lunch with, uh, you know, uh, last week, uh, Frank Turk, um, he he uh, speaks very glowingly of Carl Truman. In fact, whenever he mentions Carl Truman, he says, say law, you know, you got to stop and ponder anyway. Um, so here, uh, Carl Truman is, you know, giving a hat tip over to uh, Frank Turk. And we're going to take a look at his blog post in a minute. But uh, Carl Truman continues writing, says, one thing is worthy of a general comment. However, it is a classic example of the current celebrity culture in, evan in evangelicalism, but perhaps not in quite the way that you might expect. One thing that is so striking about the rise of, of celebrity in the wider world is that it has been accompanied by the rise of the myth of the polymath. Okay? Thus, a pop star who can write a song that becomes a hit also becomes a person who is consulted about things like gay rights, third world debt, and global warming. 
they are no more qualified, and in some cases they're actually less qualified, than you or I to offer such advice. But we are never asked because we have not written a pop hit, or nor have we starred in a movie. We now see this phenomenon in the evangelical world. Fame and big church make you competent to speak all over the theological map. Uh, the questions posed to T.D. Jakes indicate the problem rather dramatically. Of course, all pastors are by necessity generalists and cannot be highly proficient in all areas, and that is fine 99% of the time. But when we're talking Trinitarianism with a very skillful communicator, we need somebody who is thoroughly versed in the area and who knows how to probe below superficial pat answers. We also need a venue and a mode of discourse that is appropriate to the complexities of the matter. If the transcript of the elephant room is accurate... <clears throat> He links to it, and it's where I got this. Um, the questions posed to Jake's never really reflected any knowledge of, Trini of the Trinitarian debate after the second century. They were fine as far as they went, but given the man's reputation, that's T.D. Jake's, and his affiliations, we needed the kind of questions that were posed to Marcellus of, uh, of Ancra and, Sibeli and the Sibelians of the 4th century. The theological discussions of the 3rd and 4th centuries demonstrated very clearly that simple affirmation of one God and three persons was not in itself sufficient to articulate and defend the biblical God. This is one reason why Presbyterians subscribe to confessions, but as with my own case in the OPC, ministers still have to sit no less than six uh, have to sit no less than six theological exams in order to make sure they are not simply signing up to a formula of words, but they they can actually understand those words in the correct way. When Jakes expresses concerns about the language of person, for example, that is not necessarily a sign of heresy. Calvin preferred the talk of subsistence. But for him then to prefer manifestation, a term with a lot more problematic baggage historically and theologically than ever person has, and apparently be given a pass on that, that speaks volumes about the quality of the questioning. Of course, some will respond and say that this is to make Christianity elitist. Do we really have to read extensively in the literature of the 3rd and 4th centuries to be Christians? Well, not at all. Romans 10 sets the bar nice and low for credible Christian profession. But we're not dealing here with men who are simply making a credible Christian profession as church members. We're dealing with pastors who lead churches and hold terrible and awesome responsibility for protecting their flock and making sure the truth is taught. We are also dealing with men who, uh, through the use of conferences and the Internet, aspire to influence your congregation and mine, not that that is necessarily wrong. Example, what Christian does, uh, what Christian does not read books written by others, you know, for instance, okay? But it, it does give us all a dog in the fight. To use the American phrase, if they give Jakes a clean bill of health, then that has much wider implications than simply for the participants of the elephant room. As to venue and mode of discourse, 
A chat show in front of an audience is not an adequate context for hashing out the doctrine of God. Like American presidential debates, the form tends to allow aesthetics too much more power, and the soundbite nature of discussion allows for no sophistication whatsoever. A bit of a problem when, when it is the trinity that we're discussing. That strikes hard against the democratic, individualist, Wikipedia-loving, pragmatic, can-do mentality of the modern world, but it is the truth nonetheless. I would also add that the failure to address Jake's prosperity teaching was just as sad. I was talking to a friend the other day about his congregation, of which a significant proportion is made up of African-American refugees from Jake's style prosperity gospel. They are apparently heartbroken at the mainstreaming of this man. This requests that we ask hard questions in the right venue and consider the elephant room to have signally failed in this regard will no doubt evince cries of, Hey, hater! from some quarters. This, that is apparently the standard reaction now when anyone questions the actions of a successful pastor of a large church. If, however, we take true doctrine seriously, then surely we will see false teaching for what it is, soul-destroying. Reflect on a parallel situation for a moment. Let us say that week after week after week, I see a, go a congregant's wife with a black eye and an arm covered in cuts and bruises. So eventually I ask her husband, Did you do that? To which he says, No, I abhor violence and I despise the sort of people who beat their wives. In such circumstances, is it unloving, pharisaical, or hateful of me to press the question a little further? I think not. Indeed, failure to do so would be moral delinquency of the highest order. To press the matter is actually responsible pastoring. The same thing applies with those whose public teaching seems to be deviant. It is not hateful to press the hard questions and to do so with appropriate competence in a suitable context. Rather, that is right and necessary. Great article by uh, Carl Truman, by the way. Fantastically done. And real quick before the break, let's take a look at what Frank Turk wrote in his blog post entitled, After the Circus Parade. Uh, yes, part three of my conference notes are already posted so you can see them below. However, yesterday, T.D. Jakes apparently came clean as a fully-throated Trinitarian and suffered a round of brotherly acceptance from James McDonald and Mark Driscoll. So the whole matter is settled, and now you people seem to owe everybody an apology for your godless, cessationist carping about orthodoxy and such things. Right? Oh, wait. James McDonald resigned from the leadership of the Gospel Coalition just days before Bishop Jake's revelation that manifestations and persons are pretty much the same thing as long as you make sure your footnotes are properly added. You know, and the question of whether or not the prosperity gospel is in any way problematic with regards to the preaching of Christ and him crucified, especially when it comes to the consequences of giving and in the actions of the pastor, well, that just didn't come up. So here's the deal. <clears throat> Phil is in deepest, darkest Eastern Europe this week, and I gave Dan Phillips the week off so I could post my conference notes here 
and link to the audio. That means I get to post the first responses to the Elephant Room content. Are you ready? <laughs> By the way, Phil Johnson called me from Russia yesterday, So, and we, we talked for a few minutes. Yeah, he, he had heard what had happened and uh, gave me a call. Anyway, Frank Turk writes and says, Ahem. All right. Someone needs to check the date for Mark Driscoll's shelf life as a reliable person. <laughs> In the past month, he utterly disgraced himself on the unbelievable podcast by interrogating this host, Justin Brierly, and accusing him and the whole British Christian church of being a flop because they also don't have a Mark Driscoll. <laughs> oh, man. And they have a few women pastors, but... When the other shoe drops and he has Bishop Jakes sitting before him in a place where they are supposed to be hard conversations, Bishop Jakes gets the velvet gloves, including a complete whiff at the issue of egalitarianism in, in Jakes's own theology in church. Of course, Jakes was not criticizing Driscoll's book, so the question of whether he's a good egalitarian or a bad one seems to fade into the distance. Two. The Gospel Coalition's response to McDonald's resignation is par for the course for an organization that frankly values unity above the means to achieve unity, which is sharpening each other with the truth. The dodge that they are a center-bounded organization also needs to be checked for its shelf life date as this kerfuffle demonstrates exactly what it means to be center-bounded. You can hang on with us as long as you don't embarrass us, and when you do embarrass us, you just have to excuse yourself, and we'll simply smile and wave goodbye. If what happened yesterday was that Bishop Jakes exonerated himself from the charges of, as they say, bloggers, then credible people should embrace his clarifications. They certainly weren't any kind of recanting. And we happen to know of a group who are qualified to do that. If Jakes's chat with Mark Driscoll does not finally clear things up, then what's the best way for the council at the Gospel Coalition to handle Mark Driscoll's non-resigned council member endorsement of Jakes's orthodoxy? I don't have any suggestions, but I think ignoring it is the way old-school fundamentalists acted when their leaders did stupid things, and we know that the Gospel Coalition is not a group of fundies, right? <clears throat> Three, the Gospel Coalition is not the only organization that has bacon in the fire after yesterday. Acts 29 is full of men who, if you ask me, are serious and sober guys with theological convictions that the gospel matters, which is why they bring it to the least of these wherever they are. I know Acts 29 guys. I know they abhor the prosperity gospel, anti-Trinitarianism, the Oprah, Osteen axis of feel-good pep talks, which passes directly through the center of Jake's church, using the Bible like a fortune cookie generator and phony expressions of anything including unity. I'm looking forward to them helping us understand what happened yesterday because they, too, are not old-school fundies who support their leaders no matter what, and the matter what has presented itself as if the circus parade has just come down Main Street. So there you go. You're going to miss a great post on what the gospel means to marriage in the church today because you're going to get totally absorbed by this post. Good thing nothing ever disappears on the Internet. So there you go. Uh, Frank Turkwing, apparently he's seen and heard what you know, the full thing of what went on. And by the way, Circus Parade, and yeah, somebody's got some explaining to do. Because here, correct me if I'm wrong. When Mark Driscoll came onto the scene and this whole idea of the emerging church and being postmodern and relevant and cool and hip, wasn't one of the 
major buzzwords those guys like Mark Driscoll were kicking around. Wasn't that buzzword authentic? <laughs> yeah. How was how was Driscoll's handling of TD Jakes authentic in any kind of a postmodern sense? It wasn't authentic at all. The whole thing seemed well like a staged reality TV show, a scripted kind of thing, you know, similar to the <clears throat> office. Anyway, we're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. When we get back, we will examine from the transcript uh, what exactly went down. What did Jake say? What did he admit to? What did he confess? You don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh, sacked the choir, and put dang. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weaponry are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll, I'll come in again. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do chief weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. And, okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth Pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? 
We're, we're innocent. innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, things like the doctrine of the Trinity really need to be hashed out in real venues where real tough questions can be asked by real grown-up theologians. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay. Now, right here in my uh, currently Cheetos-stained fingertips is a uh, is a copy of the transcript of what went down during the T.D. Jakes, Mark Driscoll, um, James McDonald discussion regarding Jakes's modalism in the Trinity and the Trinity. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read portions of the transcript, and you'll be able to quickly see. What's been going on here? Now, the nice thing about this is that since I'm not going to be playing the audio, you get to hear the words well spoken by me, which means you you, you don't you know I don't have uh, T D Jakes's warm, fuzzy, Care Bear, oversized, really nice guy kind of vibe going on for me, and and I'm you know I'm just reading the the the, the transcript straight so that we can analyze what was said. So here's the deal: Driscoll asks him about his upbringing and he and talking about Jesus only modalism okay driscoll you know that was his that was his question about Jesus only modalism what 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 type of church and what it is that he believed jake then answers he says yes Jesus only modalism which is still a theological term that's why i've been that's why i've been using because it's still a theological term but christians 
Christians believe in Jesus Christ, that he died and rose from the dead, coming back again. All the same things that you do. Pentecostal Christians, by its virtue, but how they describe and explain the Godhead in non in a, in a traditional oneness, oneness sense is very different from how Trinitarians describe the gospel. And I was in that church and raised in that church for a number of years. My problem with it as I begin to go on is that as I began to develop my ministry and I started preaching from the pulpit and that sort of thing, but I'm also informed by the infiltration from my Baptist experience and my Methodist experience. So I ended up <clears throat> being a Methobapticostal in a way. I'm kind of like a mixed breed sitting up here. And what I begin to find out, it is easy to throw rocks at people that you don't know, but the more you really get to know them and see Christ work in their lives, regardless of their belief system, you begin to try to build bridge, uh, build bridge building. <clears throat> That's, this is from the transcript. And so the reason I say that with, with you only in this aspect, when you try to build bridges between people who've been fighting for hundreds of years, hundreds of years before you ever even got in the discussion, the man who stands in the middle of the road gets hit uh, by both sides. So I began to progress. I began to understand that some of the dogma that I'd been taught in the oneness movement was very dogmatic and very narrow and really not the best description of how I now understand the Godhead. I still did not want to switch teams and start throwing rocks back across the street because Much of what we do today is teach people to take sides. But I believe we are called as the body of Christ to reconcile wherever possible. Okay, I'm going to pause right there for a second. Are you catching that? I mean, the way he's telling this story, okay, and this is, again, from from the transcript, okay, is he's very clear about the fact that um, he he had a, an experience with the re, the real Jesus in a church that denies the doctrine of the Trinity. He then basically tells the story in such a way that these are people who love Jesus and that there's been all these rocks throwing back and forth between these two feuding camps for hundreds and hundreds of years. But what we really see because and here's what he says. We teach people to take sides, but I believe we're called as the body of Christ to reconcile wherever possible. So let me ask you this question. Are Christians, do they have a biblical duty because of what God has revealed about himself in the scripture? Do Christians have a biblical duty to reject and repudiate modalism as a heresy and those who hold to the modalistic heresy heretics? and to consider them as outside of Christianity. Okay? That's the question that's on the table. The answer is yes. Okay? Nowhere in Scripture do you see false doctrine and heresy being something that we're just supposed to, oh, no, 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 listen, they believe in Jesus too. They believe in Jesus. You just need to, you know, do some bridge building. Okay? Let me give you a biblical example of what I mean. If you have your Bible, flip on over to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Paul writing to the churches in Galatia. Let's see if he thought, you know, hey, listen. Let's set this up for you historically. If we were to go back in time 
to the churches in Galatia just in the days immediately before they received this letter from the Apostle Paul. Would we have been able to say of them, listen, these are guys, the, the people the people in this church, they believe in Jesus. Yep, they believe in Jesus. They believe Jesus died for their sins. Yep, they believe Jesus died for their sins. Who do they pray to? Do they pray to Jesus? Okay. Um, so they pray to Jesus, they believe in Jesus, and all that kind of stuff. They probably had the same doctrine of the Godhead and all of that, right? Okay. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul writes, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us in the present evil age according to the will of God, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than the one that we preach, let him be eternally damned, as I have said already. So let me say it again. If anybody's preaching a gospel other than the one that you accepted, let him be eternally damned. Huh. Yeah, I'm not seeing anything here about bridge building. Um, apparently, the Apostle Paul was just the worst bridge builder in the whole world. What's the deal with that? I mean, how can he call himself a, uh, you know, a, I mean, a Christian? How would you think, would do you think the Apostle Paul would have given a velvet glove treatment to T.D. Jakes? Do you think the Apostle Paul would have been amening and fist-pumping T.D. Jakes when he says things like, um, I still don't want to switch teams and start throwing rocks back across the street, talking about his modalist um, folks that he knows, because much of what we do today is to teach people to take sides. Hmm. The Apostle Paul took sides here. Isn't that weird? Okay, so, yeah, see, we, uh, but I believe we are called as the body of Christ to reconcile wherever possible. Can Christians reconcile with people who believe in a different God? Because the God of modalism, uh, the, the church has already had this fight, okay? And our ancient forebears have said, listen, this affects the gospel itself. And it, the modalists believe in a different God than the God who's revealed in Scripture, okay? So how can we reconcile with a modalist? Answer, call the modalist to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins, namely the sin of idolatry, and have them re you know, believe the truth and repudiate the lie. Plain and simple. But this is not what's going on in the, uh, in the elephant room. Okay, In fact, something completely different. Now, if you're tempted to think that this attitude that Paul has is somehow not really consistent with Jesus Christ, let me quote to you some words of Jesus, okay? Um, you can find these words of Jesus, by the way, in the book of Revelation. A lot of folks seem to forget that Jesus speaks very clearly. In fact, he has the apostle John dictate some letters directly from him to the churches in, in, you know, in different parts of Asia Minor, okay? Jesus here's his uh, message to the church, the church in Ephesus. He says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, 
your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Hmm. Jesus is commending the church in Ephesus for doing that. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. So remember, therefore, from where you have uh, where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this I, you also have. Here's a second commendation. So Jesus begins with commendation rebuke, calling him to repentance. And then he says this, listen to these words, Revelation chapter two, verse six, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Now this, I'm going to pause right there. I'm not going to read the whole verse quite yet. I just want, I want you to get the impact of what's going on here. Jesus here is saying to the church in Ephesus that they hate the work of the Nicolaitans. By the way, church history tells us that the Nicolaitans were an antinomian sect. Now, would the Nicolaitans been able to say they believe in Jesus? Yep. Did the Nicolaitans believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins? Yep. Uh-huh, they did. Huh. But listen to what Jesus says. Verse 6 again. This you have, you hate. doesn't say that you are trying to be bridge builders or you know reconcile with them. It says that you hate the work of the Nicolaitans. Then Jesus says, which I also hate. Huh. Apparently, Jesus is a hater. I just want to make that point. And it's a good point to bring up. Okay, so here's the deal. J- uh, T.D. Jakes in the elephant room is really not, you know, giving very good answers. They seem to be kind of squishy, middle of the road, obfuscatory. I don't even know if that's a word. But anyway, you get what I'm saying here. Okay, so he says, I believe we are called as the body of Christ to reconcile wherever possible. McDonald then says, all right, but before we get into it, get into, and I think what, what you're leading us into is why it is helpful and it reflects why we are here. How we relate to people is on the subject. But before we even go to that, I'd love to give you an, an opportunity to, well, like there are some particular scriptures that be, began to move you. You began to move and to develop what you personally believe. I, I'd just like to hear you articulate that. So, uh, notice that McDonald here is making it clear he had talked with Jakes and he knew where he was going and he's trying to push him, you know, coax him and push him along in his storytelling. Right. So McDonald's here has let, made it clear he knows where Jakes is going and he just wants him to keep going. Right. So Jake says, well, my struggle after I was ordained and consecrated within the Oneness Church was in some passages, sometimes the doctrine fits, sometimes it doesn't. And when the doctrine uh, becomes the primary thing, you force it into many places where it really doesn't fit. I really, at this point in my life, don't want to force my theology to fit within my denomination. I am open to hear whatever God is saying. Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, for example, coming up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove. The Father speaks from heaven. And we see all three of them on one occasion or in Genesis, let us make man in our likeness or Elohim. He is one God who manifested himself in a plurality of ways. Okay, listen to that again. Quoting the Hebrew word Elohim from the Old Testament, uh, T.D. Jakes says, or, or like Elohim, he is one God who 
manifested himself in a plurality of ways. Or what Jesus says, I am with the Father and the Father is with me, and understanding or attempting to understand, and that began to make me rethink some of my ideas and some of the things that I was taught. I got kind of quiet about it for a while because when you are a leader and you are in a position of authority, sometimes you got to back up and ponder for a minute and really think things through. And I began to realize that there are some things that could be said about the Father that can't be said about the Son. There are distinctives between the working of the Holy Spirit, the moving of the Holy Spirit, and the redemptive work of Christ. I am very comfortable with that. You and I have talked. Graham and I have talked. There is very little difference between what I believe and what you believe. But here is where I have a problem. I don't think anything that any of us believes fully describes who God is. And if we would ever humble down to admit that we in our finite minds cannot fully describe an infinite God. I'm going to pause there for a second. So he hasn't really said anything definitive here regarding what he believes regarding the Trinity. In fact, in one sentence, he says he, the Elohim is one God who manifested himself in a plurality of ways. That's modalistic talk again. Okay. He's talking out of both sides of his mouth here, and now he's using a classic argument that people who are generally trying to um, not have to give clear confessions use. Oh, God is infinite. Surely he is. Oh, yes. And we can't fully understand him. This is absolutely true. Yes, you and I cannot fully understand God, but that's the thing. No Trinitarian is actually claiming that they fully understand everything about the infinite God, are they? This is a red herring. This is off topic. Those who believe in the doctrine of the Trinity are not saying they fully understand everything about the infinite God. What they are saying is, is that what God has revealed about himself, we can understand to a degree. So much to a degree that we can know with clarity uh, that God is one in three. Okay. So McDonald then jumps on the bandwagon. No, no, I, I can't. I, I have it perfectly figured out. I understand God from, from a, I, well, I have it. I'm perfect. So, I mean, doesn't that concept even insult you? Well, no one's arguing that. That's the funny thing, though. Do Trinitarians claim that they know everything about the infinite God? Nope. So here, in this theodrama that has an agenda that's supposed to look like reality TV but isn't, um... They go after those who hold to hard and fast definitions regarding the doctrine of the Trinity and basically cast an aspersion on them to you know, basically create the impression that they, believe, that they believe that they can know everything about the infinite God. But no one's saying that. It's off topic. It's a red herring. So Driscoll then jumps in. He says, well, we all would agree that in the nature of God there is mystery, and it's like a dimmer switch, how much certainty, how much mystery. But within that, Bishop Jakes... For you, the issue between twin Trinitarianism and modalism at its essence is, is one God manifesting himself successively in three ways or one God, three persons simultaneously existing eternally. So at so your best, what is your understanding now? And I understand there is some mystery for sure. Would you say it's one God manifesting himself in three ways or one God in three persons? Jakes, I believe that neither one of them totally did it for me. Neither one of them told. So the question was, which is it? 
One God manifesting himself in three ways or one God in three persons? Jakes, I believe neither one of them totally did it for me, but the latter one is where I stand today. Driscoll, one God, three persons. Jakes, one God, three persons. One God, three persons. And here is why. There, I am not crazy about the word persons. This is most people who follow me know that that is really, my doctrinal statement is no different from yours except for the word manifestations, Driscoll interrupts. Jake says manifest instead of persons. So he says he believes in one God, three persons, but then he starts to take issue and quibble with the word persons and then begins to give an argument as to why he prefers the term manifest. Okay. Jake's manifest instead of persons, which you describe as modalist, but I describe it as Pauline. When I read, when I read, let me show you what I'm talking about. When I read 1 Timothy 3.16, I didn't create this. Paul did. And without controversy, which I think we have, we have been bickering about something which Paul describes as a mystery. And I don't think we should do that. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, for God was manifest in the flesh. Now, Paul is not a modalist, but he doesn't think it is robbery to the divinity of God to think God was manifest in the flesh. And I think there maybe it's semantics because, uh, well, but Paul says this before this fight was started. Okay, now I'm going to point this out here. This is ridiculous. 1 Timothy 3.16 is not discussing the nature of the Godhead. It's discussing the doctrine of the Incarnation. And I mean, literally, I mean, seriously, I mean, it. this is like somebody who got their dot, you know, their, their license to uh, practice medicine in uh, from a Mexican diploma mill is questioning uh, T.D. Jakes here. I mean, seriously, if I was sitting across from Jakes, I would have basically say, hey, wait a second. First Timothy 3.16 is about the incarnation, and when you read it in a modern translation, it clears up rather uh, rather easily. But uh, here, I'll read it from the NIV so you can see what's going on here. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He, that's God, appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations. Notice that the word, it doesn't say manifested, it says appeared appeared in a body, right? And now the ESV translated as he was manifested in the, oh, let me pull it up. So hang on a second here. He was manifest, manifested in the flesh. So what's the Greek word behind it? Because here's the deal. This isn't talking about the nature of the Godhead as far as manifestations are concerned. This is talking about the doctrine of the incarnation. And the Greek word is phanero, Okay, phanero, which means to cause or to become visible, to reveal, to expose publicly. So what this passage is saying is that great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, that's God, was revealed in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations. So here's, I mean, seriously, at this point, Jakes is engaging in obfuscation. On the one hand, he says he believes in one God and three persons, but then he turns right around and starts undermining and attacking and redefining the word person to fit uh, the, the concept of manifestation. All of this in the name of mystery. And I mean, seriously, it's like he's tr purposely trying to ride the fence. This is not 
how you get to the bottom of whether or not T.D. Jakes is a Trinitarian or not. It's plain and simple. If he's a Trinitarian, have him subscribe to the Athanasian Creed. Period. Will you sign this document? Yes or no? Okay? Why? The Athanasian Creed is the clearest thing on there. But that's not what we got at the Elephant Room. I've watched the entire video of uh, this exchange with Driscoll and and Jakes and um, James McDonald. And, and here's the conclusion I've come to. Apparently... T.D. Jakes is somebody who affirms the doctrine of the Trinity but prefers to do so by embracing modalistic language. So he's a Trinitarian modalist. That's very postmodern, don't you think? Yeah, I think so too. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. A couple good sermons coming up. Don't want to miss them. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. I'm going to be doing a couple of good sermons. I've scoured the uh, the Lutheran webosphere looking for some good recent sermons that take Old Testament texts and preach Christ. So you can hear what it sounds like. Rather than preaching yourself, we preach Jesus. So let me uh, cue up the music so we can... Uh, 
make sure we got this done right. Here we go. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon, sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons come to us via two different churches. The first is from Faith Lutheran Church in Greenfield, Indiana, heading out the, towards the Ohio border. But Pastor William O'Connor presiding. The first sermon is entitled, What? That's the name of it. Now, i got to warn you, the audio quality isn't that great, but that doesn't matter. It's, it's a fantastic sermon. The text is from 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, the, uh, the story of Naaman the leper. Sermon number 2 comes to us via Faith Lutheran Church, Capistrano Beach, California, Pastor Jeremy Rohde presiding, and the name of that one is Jacob's Ladder, and it draws a connection between Genesis chapter 18, verses 10 through 17, and John, the Gospel of John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. Now watch how both pastors use the Old Testament text to basically be the launching point to tell us about Jesus. Not you, Jesus. Yeah, and the reason I bring this up, if, you know, yesterday on the Issues Etc. radio program, Todd Wilkin did a full-blown review of uh, Stephen Furtick's last Code Orange Revival sermon about the, about you know, the... It, it's your moment kind of thing. Oh, man. It was so bad. I was listening to this morning and just cracking up. But uh, Furtick, I mean, he, not only does he allegorize Samuel in the text to be you, he Sam, he allegorizes David to be you. Apparently, you are all over the, the Old Testament text, but I got bad news. You ain't in there. So, anyway, let's kill the music. And uh, what I'm going to do first, uh, let me read the uh, the biblical text that forms the basis of this sermon. 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. The, here we, let me read. Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. This would be Elisha. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went and told his Lord thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel so the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing, and he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, <clears throat> When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. It's <laughs> a great story. anyway. And so when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, 
He sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you will be clean. Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Arbana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But a servant came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And then he returned to the man of God and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all of the earth but in Israel. So now accept a present from your servant. This is the Old Testament text that makes the forms the basis of this sermon by Pastor William O'Connor, Faith Lutheran Church, Greenfield, Indiana. The name of the sermon is What? Here we go. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Heavenly Father, for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in the power of his life-giving spirit. The word of God for our meditation this third Sunday after our Lord's Epiphany. It is written in our Old Testament lesson for today, the book of 2 Kings, chapter 5. It is the account of the Syrian commander Naaman being healed of his uh, leprosy by the prophet Elisha. This is our text. Please. In the name of Jesus, dear Christian friends, stop me if you've heard this before. God works in mysterious ways. Of course you're stopping me. You've all heard that before. And it, that saying goes on to say, God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to behold. That's true. Sometimes we're only able to behold God's wonders in hindsight because in the moment, he worked in that moment, he worked in a way that was mysterious and hard to understand. Sometimes God works in ways that make us just, we don't understand, they just don't get it all. Ways that make us want to ask, what? We see that in today's Old Testament lesson. Let me show you what I mean. In today's Old Testament lesson, we hear of a man named Naaman, who had a skin disease called leprosy. The book of 2 Kings describes Naaman this way. He was commander of the army of the king of Syria. He was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Syria was the name of that part of the world also known as Aram. It lay just to the north and east of the land where God's people dwelt. And it was the dominant world power at the time of the events of this text. The situation for God's people at that time was that, oh, I don't know, about a century or so before... They had divided themselves from one another, separating into two kingdoms, north and south. The southern kingdom where Jerusalem and the temple were took the name Judah. The northern kingdom took the name or kept the name of Israel. 
at the time of the events of today's Old Testament lesson, the northern kingdom of Israel was under the rule of Syria. And while Syria did not actually occupy the land, it did subject Israel to its authority. <laughs> From time to time, Syria would even invade the land of Israel, just to remind them who was boss. In fact, that's what's being hinted at in today's text when we hear that the Syrians, on one of their raids, one of their invasions in Israel, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. Okay, I'm going to pause right there. Notice what he's doing here. He's giving us the historical background of this text so we can better understand contextually what's going on. Very critical piece of what's known as the historical grammatical method of understanding scripture. So the history, so the words put back into their historical context, the historical context helps us better understand what this text is saying. Beautifully done, too. Well done. Succinct at that. At that time, the above-mentioned uh, servant girl informed Naaman that there was a man of God, Elisha, living in Israel who could cure him of his leprosy. And so Naaman journeyed there with a letter from his king requesting healing. When Naaman appeared before the king of Israel, he presented the request of his king in writing, which read this way. When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And then the text goes on to say that when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill him to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? See how he is seeking a quarrel with me. When I first read that, I wasn't entirely clear on just what was going on there, why the king of Israel reacted the way he did. But when you step back and consider the historical context that we just reviewed together, then it becomes clear. The king of Israel is afraid of the king of Syria. Remember, Syria had conquered Israel. Given that Syria frequently entered into the land of Israel on invasions and raided her, the king of Israel thought that the king of Syria was setting him up for another invasion. Especially when we consider that Naaman was the commander of the army of Syria, then it becomes doubly clear that Israel's king thought Naaman was taking a fight with him for the king of Syria. A fight Israel's king knew he could not win. Of course, this reading in this text is not about Syria picking a fight with Israel. It's about the commander of Syria's army, Naaman, seeking a cure for his leprosy and finding it in the land of Israel through the prophet Elisha. The text goes on to say that Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Naaman at first did not do that. The text tells us that instead he was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Why? Why did Naaman not do what Elisha told him to do? 
Although the text doesn't explicitly say, it seems reasonable to assume, to assume that he thought washing himself in the waters of the Jordan River would be beneath him. Remember, Naaman had invaded and had conquered repeatedly the land of Israel. He probably thought his own land was better, including its rivers. In fact, look, notice the comment he makes about the Jordan River. He says that, that it's inferior to the rivers of Damascus, which was part of his land of Syria. We can certainly see his sense of superiority in the way he responds to Elisha's failure to come out and even talk to him personally. Did you notice that? When Naaman arrived at Elisha's house, the text says that Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. And Naaman responded by saying, I thought that he would surely come out to me. Naaman was impressed with himself. He was hot stuff. How dare Elisha not even take the time to come out to him and talk to him himself. To his way of thinking, Israel was a conquered people. Elisha, her prophet, was a conquered prophet. Elisha's words to him didn't matter because he and all of Israel to Naaman were God-forsaken. Nothing Elisha did or said made him think any different. But it was different. For in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness, which brought about Syria's dominance in response to Israel's sin, discipline for Israel's sin, in spite of that, God was still in her land, in the ministry of the prophet Elisha. And so when Naaman got over his initial shock at being so disrespected, he went and did what Elisha told him to do. He washed himself seven times in the Jordan River. And just as Elisha had said, he was cured of his leprosy. In the process, Naaman not only had his, his skin made new, but also his heart. As the text goes on to say in the verses immediately following those of today's Old Testament lesson, Naaman became a believer in the God of Israel. Now, as we take a step back from this story, I think we can see a crucial question kind of lurking behind the scenes. The question being, what? Say what? You want me to do what? We hear it from the mouth of the king of Israel when he reacts in fear to the king of Syria's letter. What? You want me to heal this man of his leprosy? Or in the actual words of the king, am I God to kill him to make alive? We hear it from the mouth of the man of leprosy. Naaman, as he reacts with disgust at Elijah's telling him to wash himself in the Jordan River. Are not Adonai and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Can I not wash in them and be clean? In other words, what? You want me to wash myself in that muddy water? The question, what, hovers over the entire reading as God works in ways that are mysterious. For those involved. God does that, I believe, to put them in a position of having to rely on him. That was the case with Naaman, wasn't it? He couldn't rely on his status, his importance of being serious, uh, the commander of Syria's army, his military conquest, all of that. He couldn't rely on any of that. He had to rely on God's word alone, the word that came to him. To the prophet Elisha. 
Only in that word did Naaman find the answer to his question, what? Only in God's word did Naaman find healing from his leprosy. The same goes for you and me. We, too, just like Naaman, find ourselves mired in a life of uncleanness. Sickness and disease infect us all. Pain and suffering are inevitable. The shame of sin follows us wherever we go. But also, as with Naaman, so too with us, God enters into our lives with healing, working in mysterious and hard-to-understand ways to save us from our sin. Think about it. Through Elisha, God told Naaman to wash himself in the murky waters of the Jordan River. Through the Elisha, that is your pastor and pastors everywhere, God washes you in water that has been made murky with blood, the blood of his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He stood in that very same river that Naaman stood in centuries later, centuries ago for us, in the Jordan River, being baptized himself. Think about a mysterious act that was. The Son of God being baptized as a sinner. John the Baptist even asked the question, What? Do you come to me? I should be coming to you. But that's how the Lord Jesus took upon himself sin. John's sin, Naaman's sin, your sin, my sin, the sins of all. And having paid for those sins on Calvary's cross, and having risen from the dead to usher in new life for us all, Our Lord Jesus now lives alive and well to wash away all uncleanness, removing even the shame of sin with his word of forgiveness. That forgiveness might be hard for us to believe at times, given the enormity of our sin, the shame of our sin. So hard to believe that we sometimes find ourselves reacting with a disbelieving, What? I'm forgiven? But that leads us all the more back to God's word, where we're told, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. At the end of the day, just like Naaman, all we have is God's word. At the end of the day, just like Naaman, we have God's word. A word that heals us of our sin. And on that note, we conclude, you know, both today's Old Testament lesson and today's gospel speak of healings. You have Naaman being healed of his leprosy by Elijah in the Old Testament lesson. You have Jesus healing a leper in today's gospel. Matthew 8, and after that, he heals uh, the servant of the centurion and the disease that, that he was afflicted with. Given that by God's word, he provides healing for us from our sin, we may be led to wonder why it is we still struggle with sickness. I mean, after all, we don't just heal up when we come to church. I don't know the answer to that question. In fact, it's one of those questions that I still struggle with as I struggle for faith. We all do. But I think it has something to do with the difference between life now and life on the last day after Jesus comes again. After all, we are told in the scripture that on the last day of Jesus' glorious return, all sickness, all pain, all suffering, all sin, even death itself will finally be done away with forever. 
Until then, we continue receiving the cure for the ultimate sickness of sin, which is the forgiveness of God's word. And as we do, we are healed and made new through faith in Jesus Christ. And we never have to wonder when dealing with God. What? In Jesus' name. Amen. So he, t- he takes Naaman dipping in the Jordan and uses that to springboard to talk about Jesus and his baptism in the Jordan so that he can end on the forgiveness of sins and what Jesus has done for us. Nothing silly about this was Naaman's moment and it can be your moment too or none of that kind of nonsense. Just using the Old Testament text, telling the story, the faithfulness of God, and springboarding correctly into the New Testament to tell us about Jesus. Well done, Pastor O'Connor. Well done. Okay, our second sermon comes to us via Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. And this is a sermon that takes the story from Genesis 28, 10 through 17, and parallels it with uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. So let me read the Old Testament and the Gospel text here. Genesis 28, starting at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba, went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. He dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord God stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. (laughs) There is a promise right there regarding Jesus. Sorry, I just get excited. Anyway, behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Now that's the Old Testament text. Let me read the New Testament. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of, uh, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus said, Nathaniel, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than this. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending 
and descending on the Son of Man. These are the biblical texts that form the basis of this next sermon by Pastor Jeremy Rohde entitled Jacob's Ladder. Now, point something out here. You should already begin to start seeing the connection between the Old and New Testament with the words ascending and descending. Now watch what Pastor Rohde does with this. Here's Pastor Jeremy Rohde. Here we go. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Jacob was on a journey, no looking back, or at least he didn't want to look back. In the rearview mirror, there was nothing but the wreckage of what had been his life. He had sinned. He had deceived. He went to his father Isaac with skins of goats wrapped around his arms. His blind and elderly father heard Jacob's voice, but when he felt the goat skins, he reckoned him to be Esau. And so Jacob deceived his dying father. And the blessing that should have gone to Esau came to him. Needless to say, big brother Esau was not at all pleased. In fact, he made no bones about wanting Jacob's bones buried six feet under the sand. So Jacob fled, trying desperately to leave all of that behind him. You may be done with the past, but the past isn't done with you. As the evening came and the sun set, Jacob closed his eyes. He deserved one of those restless nights to toss and turn in fitful sleep. He deserved to be tormented by his own conscience. He deserved to have nightmares of Esau coming for revenge. He deserved all that and much more. But when he closed his eyes... He didn't get what he deserved. Instead, he dreamt of a ladder coming down from heaven with angels ascending and descending upon it. What he saw was an image of undeserved mercy. What he heard was a voice speaking undeserved mercy grace. The God whom he had sinned against absolved him and said, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. What was true for undeserving Jacob is also true for undeserving you. God keeps his promise. Nothing that you have done can make God step away from his promise. God unites himself with sinners. Heaven unites itself with earth. The great ladder reaches down from heaven and upon it heaven's helpers come. The holy angels ascend and descend. 
from this great ladder, all of God's mercy comes to you. What Jacob saw in a dream, Nathaniel saw with his eyes. You will see heaven opened, Jesus said, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jacob's dream came true. The ladder that comes down from heaven is the Son of Man. Jacob's ladder is Jesus Christ. Without this word of Jesus, we never would have seen it. Without this word of Jesus, we would be spiritually blind. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, but turn out that lamp and we are in the dark. Tune out the word of Jesus and you will be spiritually blind. What does it mean to be spiritually blind? You can ask Jacob or ask Nathaniel. Neither man could see God rightly, though God saw them. Neither man knew God fully, though they were completely known by Him. To be known by God, what a startling thing. Nathaniel had never met Jesus before in his life. But Jesus sure seemed to know him. In fact, Jesus greeted Nathaniel as if they were old friends. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. That's all it took? That's all it took to realize that you are known by the Lord through and through. To come to know that there is nothing that is hidden from Him. He knows you better than you know yourself. Because you are not your own. You are His. To be known by God. It's not exactly comforting, is it? When people excuse some of their actions by saying, It's okay, God knows what's in my heart. That's a pretty foolish thing to say. He knows what's in your heart, all right. He knows that the human heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. He knows what's in your heart better than even you do. And that's not exactly comforting. But to be known by him in the way that Nathaniel was known. To be greeted by him as a friend. That is comforting. 
to know that this Jesus is a friend of sinners. He eats with them and drinks with them and does so still today to know that you are not your own because you were bought with a price. That is comforting. Each and every one of your sins has been paid for by each and every one of the drops of his precious blood that fell from his outstretched limbs when he hung there upon the cross. The very same blood that he sheds, that he pours out for you to drink this morning, for you, he says, for the forgiveness of your sins. Because this Jesus is the one who forgives sinners. He counts even you to be his friend. In undeserved mercy, in baptismal grace, Christ, your brother, strips your sins from you, strips the goat skins from your body, and wraps you with his own righteousness. So that when you come before your heavenly Father, the Father hears your voice, but reckons you to be Jesus, and blesses you accordingly. You, who are weary as Jacob, You can flee from your sins, from the people you've betrayed and deceived, from the wreckage you've made in your life. But you cannot flee from the God who loves you. Don't flee from your sins. Confess them. For the Lord Jesus has come down from heaven, not for the righteous, but for sinners lifted high upon his cross between heaven and earth. He is the ladder that brings heaven's mercies down to you. Even you who doubt as Nathaniel did. You can scoff at the lowly ways of your Lord. How can any good come from a podunked place like Nazareth? How can any good come from the tap water in that font? From the preaching, from this pulpit, from the wine and bread, from that altar? Yes, you can despise God's humble ways, but He does not despise you. You may not yet know the Lord fully, Nathaniel, but He knows you. And he sees you, even now, not under a fig tree, but under the tree of his cross. You have not come this morning to a building made with human hands, to sit in a country club of like-minded people, to hear a human preacher fill the air with a few pleasant platitudes, 
You have come into the presence of Jesus. You have come to what Jacob dreamed and Nathaniel saw. You have come to the foot of Jacob's ladder. Here heaven pours out its mercies for you. Here heavenly beings ascend and descend. Angels and archangels serve God by serving you. Here God speaks again His promise that nothing, not even your sin, can break. I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. And that, my dear listeners, is how you preach Jesus from an Old Testament text. It's really comforting, isn't it? Rather than being terrified at the end, taking notes and trying to figure out what the application is, were you not just transfixed at how amazing this good news is for a sinner like me, sinner like you. That's what the biblical gospel does, you know. Anyway, just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, listener-supported radio. Visit our website and click on one of the support methods there. And if you would like to send in your contribution, you could do so by making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code four. 6038. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.